I would like to teach you a little theology this morning. Uh, We don't do that much around here, but uh, sometimes a little theology is uh, essential. And I want to state this theology lesson in terms of two propositions. Uh, The first is that God is holy. And the second is that you aren't. And uh, lest uh, there be any question, neither am I. In fact, as Paul said, I may be the chief of, uh, of sinners. Uh, that's been the fundamental problem in the human race from almost the very beginning. How can we live with those two facts? The um, efforts to justify ourselves or legion. You know what that term justification means. You use it all the time. Once uh, a month you uh, do, or you should uh, do this, you you justify your checkbook. A statement uh, comes out from the bank, and ostensibly the uh, bank balance is correct, and you try to bring your balance uh, into accord with the balance that... uh, the bank says is real, is actual. That's uh, what we mean by justification. That's the problem that uh, faces us. How can we make ourselves holy? Or how can we be declared uh, holy? There are a lot of efforts to try to uh, justify ourselves. One is to uh, just do away with God utterly. If we could get him out of the picture, then we wouldn't have to worry about his uh, holiness. I've been reading a book by uh, Peter Kreeft in which he quotes uh, John Paul Sartre. I don't read Sartre. But uh, some of you may have read him. Uh, Back in the 60s, he was the patron saint of a lot of the counterculture street people. He's an existentialist uh, philosopher, atheistic uh, philosopher. And uh, Kreef tells us in his book how Sartre was converted to atheism. And I'm going to quote it just as he had it in his book. Only once did I have the feeling that God existed. I had been playing with matches and burned a small rug. This is when he was a small child. I was in the process of covering up my crime when suddenly God saw me. I felt his gaze inside my head and on my hands. I whirled about in the bathroom horribly visible, a live target. Indignation saved me. I flew into a rage. I blasphemed. I muttered like my grandfather, damn you, damn you, damn you. He never looked at me again. Now, the irony, of course, uh, of that statement is that uh, here's a man who claims to have seen God, and yet he does not believe that God exists. He also has... uh, very poor understanding of the look in God's eyes when he, when he looks at us. But uh, nevertheless, his solution to the problem is to write God off. Uh, another approach that we take is to make God less than holy. That was the approach of the Greeks. They tried to bring God down to their level, portray the gods as uh, lusty, passion-filled, uh, corrupted people, just as uh, we are. Um, God is uh, just a paper tiger. He's like the Wizard of Oz. 
He looks uh, fearsome on the outside, but when you really get into the internal workings of the thing, you understand that he's just as flawed as, as we are. Another uh, way we try to justify ourselves is to just think of God as a good sport. That one of these days when we stand before him, uh, he will say, well, boys will be boys and girls will be, will be girls, and uh, he will dismiss our sin, overlook it. Uh, sort of a kindly, uh, avuncular Santa Claus. Or, and this is what I call folk religion, what we try to do is make ourselves more holy. We uh, pull up our socks and we set our jaw and uh, clench our fists and we try to do a better job of living the way we know that uh, we ought to live. We try to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. We try to reverence his name and reverence his day and avoid adultery and false witness. We try to honor our, uh, our parents and we try not to want to do things that, uh, that are wrong. Uh, or... As Luther put it, we try to be very, very religious. Let me read, read something that he said about his own efforts as a monk. I was a devout monk who wanted to force God to justify me because of my works and because of the severity of my life. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I must say that if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, I would have gotten there as well. If I had kept it up any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. Now, uh, this is the kind of do-it-yourself justification scheme that, uh, that most people are, are preoccupied with. It's very popular because it appeals to the ego. It's the Nike philosophy, just do it. Or if you've been to Epcot and you've seen the GE uh, display there, there's a sign over the display that says, if you can dream it, you can do it. And that's very appealing to us because we like to think that we can do a better job of sanctifying ourselves. But the problem is it does not work at all. And we know it doesn't work. When push comes to shove, we will lie and cheat and steal and uh, welch on our promises and we will freeload shamelessly and we will overlook other people's needs and we will live very, very selfish lives. We know that's true. Uh, my father told a story once. He, uh, as I recall it, it actually happened to him. This was back in the days when people rode trains, and uh, as he was getting off the train, he wanted to do something very nice for the porter who had taken care of him on the trip. He was a very kindly uh, older gentleman, and, and my father wanted to tip him generously, and so he asked this uh, old gentleman what the average tip was, and the man told him, and so my father peeled off some bills and gave them to him, and the man said, well, thank you, Dr. Roper. He said, you're the first person who's come up to the average. And... Uh, I, uh, I relate that to, uh, our, to that day when we stand before our Lord and he says to those who have tried very hard to be good, you've put in a wonderful performance. 
outstanding performance, but uh, you just came up to the average. Because, you see, what, what God expects is not a good performance. He expects perfection. That's the standard. Absolute holiness. Not one sin. And not one of us can make it. That's why justification is a job for God. Now, that's, uh, that's Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. If we were to state it in one sentence, uh, we would say justification is God's business. He's the one who declares us to be, uh, to be holy. Now, I'd like to have you turn with me to the second chapter of Galatians, and I'm going to read verses 11 through uh, 21. Galatians 2, 11 through 21. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, that is, Peter used to. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing a law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith into Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God, that is, live to do his will. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Uh, this is a very uh, tense sin, uh, scene. You have uh, two apostles, the two leading apostles in the New Testament, the two men around whom the book of Acts is, is divided, going head to head over an issue. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Peter was the foremost of the 12 apostles. Paul was the great missionary who had invested his life in spreading the gospel throughout, uh, throughout the world. Yet these two are going mano a mano. They're, they're, they're fighting it out over this issue of, of justification by faith. Now, this took place in the city of Antioch. Let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. Antioch was basically a Gentile city, uh, unlike some of the other cities in which uh, the churches, the early churches were planted. According to Acts 11, when the first apostles reached the city of Antioch, or first disciples reached the city of Antioch, and they began to preach, a great number of uh, Greeks, Luke tells us, turned to the Lord. 
These were free spirits. They weren't religious people. They didn't have a religious background. They didn't know anything about the law. They just knew that there was this deep, deep hunger, this anxiety within for something more, something that hurt so much it almost broke their hearts. They didn't know what it was. And then they were told of the grace of God, and they responded to it. And uh, it's, it's here uh, that this uh, conflict took place. And here's what happened. Some people came from, uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, they claim to come from James. James later denies that that's so in Acts 15. He says that uh, they didn't come with his authority. But they claimed to come uh, with, uh, under, under James' ages. But they were, they were legalists, sort of squinty-eyed legalists, looking around for someone who is having fun. You know, there are always people like that. They want to snuff out fun wherever they, they find it. They're, they're always afraid that some, somebody someplace is having a good time with their Christian life. And they want to put a stop to that. So they were, they were adding things to the, to the gospel. They were saying, well, it's all right to believe in Christ, but you have to be circumcised. And it's all right to believe in Christ, but you have to keep the dietary rules. And uh, dear old Peter was, was swept away in this, uh, uh, in this conflict. He, uh, he knew better. If you read uh, Acts chapter 10, you know that the Lord in a very graphic way revealed to him that the dietary laws uh, were, were set aside. He no longer had to be concerned with uh, those temporary and superficial issues. And what happened is that these uh, Pharisees, these legalists, uh, saw Peter sitting down with, with the Gentile Christians and enjoying ham sandwiches and, and BLTs and... Uh, they censured him for that, and Peter began to withdraw, not out of conviction, but out of fear. He, he, he was a, a people pleaser on this particular occasion. Uh, the word that uh, Paul uses is very graphic. It has the idea of furling sails or trimming sails. Uh, he gradually began to withdraw and separate himself from the other Christians. Now, that was a tragedy in Antioch, and it's, uh, it's a tragedy today. Uh, the older I get, the more convinced I become that the essentials of the gospel are true. I have no question about the deity of Christ and the authority of the scriptures and the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the certainty of salvation by grace and the certainty of Christ's second coming and the certainty of our resurrection, our bodily resurrection and the and the certainty of heaven, those, those, those issues have been settled in my mind. I'm convinced, but, uh, but I'm less and less convinced of the peripheral, trivial uh, issues, the things that we're, we're uncertain about. And yet, very often, those are the things that separate us. Uh, it, it saddens me to see that happening, separating over modes of baptism, separating over different views of the future and when the tribulation will come and whether Jesus will come before or after the tribulation and whether there will be a, a literal kingdom of, of Christ on earth or whether the church today is the kingdom of heaven on earth. These are all issues that we need to be thinking about and talking about, but they should never separate us. Um, the, the way we worship, you know, whether we hold our hands up when we sing or whether we hold one hand up or or whether we stand uh, stiffly at attention when we sing, you know, 
These are all, all issues that tend to separate us. Uh, you, you know what, uh, as they say, what Baptists love. Uh, one hand in the air. You know what scares the daylights out of Baptists? Two hands in the air. You know? uh, I came across a poem some years ago that, that uh, really tickled me. It uh, goes like this. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and rapt and upturned eyes. No, 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 said Elder Shaw, such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hitchkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-stickin' up and my head a-pointin' down. <laughs> and I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standin' on my head. <laughs> now, uh... We laugh at these things, but uh, uh, for Paul, this, was, this had become a very serious issue because he saw that it would divide the church. Had he not faced into this issue, there would have forever been two tables, one, one table for Jews and one table for Gentiles. And so this was not something that uh, he could overlook. And because Peter had sinned in public, uh, he exposed his sin in public. Uh, problems don't go away, you know. They have to be confronted. Uh, they will uh, always come back to haunt you in some other form if you don't uh, deal with them. And this is a case where Paul had to speak, uh, he had to talk straight to Peter in front of the whole congregation because Peter's sin had affected the whole congregation. Uh, Jesus said that uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, that the legalism of the Pharisees was like leaven, and legalism is like that. It begins to spread through the whole church, and in this case, it affected even old Barnabas, staunch, steady, tough old Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, his troubleshooter that he sent into difficult situations, and and because uh, the sheep tend to follow the shepherds, other people in the church were being swept away by this hypocrisy. Paul calls it exactly what it is. He names it, uh, and he names it uh, publicly. Uh, back in the uh, 17th century, there was an Anglican pastor uh, by the name of Richard uh, Baxter who, was, uh, uh, who had to confront the evil in the clergy, the Episcopal clergy of that day. And uh, so he, he wrote an open letter to all the clergymen in England and uh, it was published in the newspapers, and he was criticized for doing that. Uh, his fellow clergyman said, uh, uh, Reverend Baxter, why didn't you write in Latin? Because that was the language that the, that the clergy used in communicating to one another, and the average people on the street didn't know Latin. And uh, they said, why didn't you write in Latin? And Baxter said, well, if the clergy had sinned in Latin, then I would have written in Latin. And uh, because this issue was plain and open and obvious and it was hypocrisy, uh, Paul had to, had to face into it. He does so uh, boldly. And what uh, follows here 
is Paul's rebuke of the apostle. I take it that the entire paragraph from verse 15 on clear to the end of the chapter is addressed to uh, is addressed to Peter. Some do not. Some take only the one uh, statement in verse 15. But I think it's all addressed to Peter. It's a, a summary, perhaps, of his remarks on that, that occasion. Because chapter 3 begins with a direct address to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, Paul says. Or as Phillips uh, translates that phrase, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, he says. Um, so this, I think, is a summary of, uh, of Paul's uh, confrontation with Peter. And actually a summary of the, of the book. He will, it's a kind of pricey. This the doctrine of justification by faith will unfold from this uh, this point on. Now let me uh, try to explain how Paul is arguing. This is not an easy passage to understand, but uh, this is the way I see it. Uh, Paul begins by pointing out that the doctrine of justification by faith is not uh, a new idea. It's something that's embedded. In the scripture. It's something that's been true from the very beginning. Now, uh, let's go back and read verse 14 again. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law. And you understand what he's saying? Paul says to Peter, Peter, you and I are Jews. And we know that, uh, that no one is justified by the works of the law. Now that sounds uh, strange coming from a Jew who revered the law. Furthermore, Paul goes on to say, not only do we know that fact, we have bet our life on it. He goes on to say, So we too have put our faith into Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. So they not only know the fact, they have acted upon it. Now what is it that caused Paul to come to that conclusion? Scripture. Scripture. And the last clause of verse 16 explains why he has that confidence. Because, he says, we've done this because, quote, By observing the law, no one will be justified. Close quote. Now, most of the translations don't indicate that that's a quotation. But it is. It's a quotation from Psalm 143, too. And what Paul is saying is that we know no one has ever been justified by self-effort. And uh, we have chosen to be justified by faith in Christ rather than than self-effort. Because the scriptures tell us that uh, no one will ever be justified by works. Now, a lot of Christians believe that that there are two methods of salvation taught in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the uh, method is works. You kept the law, and in the New Testament, the method is grace, but that simply is not true. From the very beginning, God has acted out of grace. And uh, we'll see that that's so in the book of Galatians as we continue on in our our studies of this book in chapter 3. Paul will point to exhibit A of faith. Abraham, the man who was the friend of God, if you want an example of someone who was intimate with God, someone who'd been reconciled to God, someone who knew God, someone who could fellowship with God. It's Abraham. How did Abraham get there? By a lifetime of good works? No. 
No, he believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's a quotation from the book of Genesis. So faith has always been the way. Paul will even refer to a very obscure Old Testament book at one point, the book of Habakkuk, that I imagine many of us have not even read, to, to prove that the just shall live by faith. That not only is justification, that is our, our initial uh, the initial act by which God declares us righteous and places us into a relationship with him, not only is that, uh, that uh, action uh, ours by faith, but uh, the whole process of sanctification and growth into maturity and Christ-likeness, that's all done by faith. We live out of faith. We grow, as Paul puts it, from faith to faith, from one degree of faith to the next. We keep on exercising faith. Now, Paul's point is, that's, that's not a recent notion. It's embedded in Scripture from the very beginning. It's always been true that we are justified by faith. No one has ever been justified by obedience to the law. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not any of the greats or near greats or not so greats in the Old Testament. They were all justified by faith. Now, uh, the second point that he wants to make is that justification by faith is the only method that works. Let me read verse 17. Now let me tell you, this next paragraph is difficult. Some of you, I'm sure, in your growth groups will have come to a different conclusion than I. And you know the principle by which we work around here. I'm not the authority. The scriptures are the authority. You're going to have to dig this information out for yourself and ponder it. This is my opinion. And I'm convinced I'm right. But uh, you don't have to believe it. Verse 17. This is the way I see it. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Now, Paul is speaking to his critics. Whenever you talk about grace, people will accuse you of being antinomian. You're trying to do away with law. The human race just naturally accommodates the rules and laws and regulations. Gives us security. Makes us feel good when we know what the limits are. And when you talk to people about grace, their immediate reaction is, well, we're going to lose control. People are going to get out of hand. They're going to run amok. And that's what they were saying about Paul. That, that, that uh, criticism was constantly addressed at, at the Apostle Paul. And so he wants to uh, disarm his critics. And he... He, he, he raises the issue that, that they themselves have been raising. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? If, in trying to be justified by grace, I become lawless, I do run amok, does that mean that Christ is the culprit? Did he do it? No. No, Paul says. Not Christ's fault. It's mine. I'm the lawbreaker. Because I don't understand what's actually happened to me. Salvation is so radical that we can honestly say once we're in Christ, I am not the man or the woman that I was. A radical change has taken place. He describes it as follows. For through the law, verse 19... I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I live in the body, it's actually the word for flesh, which includes both body and personality. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now here we come to that sticky issue of our having died with Christ, and that's very confusing to a lot of people. I hear them say, well, what is it that died? I'm not dead. I'm still alive. So something in me must have died. What died? Well, some would say your sin nature died. Well, but I still sin. I still have a lot of the same habits, a lot of the same obsessions, a lot of the same compulsions. Why can't I deal with these? Why aren't I truly dead? And that that puzzles people. Uh, is the law dead to me, or am I dead to the law? What is it that's, that's going on here? Let me read what, what Phillips, the, the way Phillips translates this uh, section, because I think he of all the translators understands my point of view. <laughs> Under the law I died, and now I'm dead to the law's demands. Now I'm dead to the law's demands so that I may live for God. As far as the law is concerned, I may consider that I died on the cross with Christ, and my present life is not that of the old I, but the living Christ within me. The bodily life I now live, I live believing in the Son of God, who loved me and sacrificed himself for me. Consequently, I refuse to frustrate the grace of God by reverting to the law. For if righteousness were possible under the law, then Christ died for nothing." Now, let me illustrate what I think he's saying. For the first time in, uh, I don't know, 40 years, I have almost finished my income tax before April the 15th, before midnight of April the 15th. Uh, I got this uh, nifty uh, little application, Mac in tax, uh, and uh, I've been, I was so fascinated by this thing, I just went ahead and did my income tax. Uh, still some facts to come in, but by and large, it's all done. And in a few weeks, when I get all the data in, I'm, I'll have it done, and I'm going to go ahead and send it in. And what I always do every year is I put all of the receipts and all of my worksheets and and all of the duplicate uh, forms and everything in a box about so big. And I close it up, and I seal it up with tape, and I write 1990 on it or whatever date it is, and I put it in my closet. In case the IRS audits me, I I know where to to get that uh, information. Now, assuming that the IRS does not audit me this year, I have taken that return, 1990 return, and all of the taxes and everything that I owe, and I've put it in that box, and I've put it up on the shelf, and I don't ever plan to open it again. And that's what Paul is saying. The law is a closed chapter. All that effort that you put into trying to do better and trying to live up to the the demands of of the law was wasted effort. It's over. That's a that's a that's a closed book. It's a it's a time of your life that you can put away and forget. You don't ever have to look back again on the law. You don't ever have to try to use of the law. Why? Because something new has taken place. You've been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Christ now, who loves you and who gave himself for you, is living inside your body. 
He's not up there. He's not over there. He's right there. He's in the sanctuary of your heart. He's taken up residence in your heart. In the life now that you live. You live not by self-effort. Not by trying harder. But by faith in the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Harden called me this last week and told me about an article in the Statesman. And Olaf very kindly brought it to me this morning. Some of you may have seen it uh, last Wednesday. Article. They've discovered now that there's something out there beyond mere matter. There's a ghost in the machine. You know, some something out there that they called uh, called cold dark matter. Uh, I want to tell you that it's not cold dark matter that's out there. It's our loving, kindly Lord Jesus, and He's not out there. He's dwelling in our hearts. I don't fully understand the process by which He changes us, but I know it's a dynamic process. There are several things that he does. The first is to put a yearning in our heart for holiness. We begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I can't explain that. I know what happened to me. I know what's happened to others who have come to Christ and been identified with him. And that that old chapter of their life is closed. There's suddenly a, a hankering after goodness and righteousness. And uh, there's an enablement, there's a strengthening there, there's an encouragement. There's a, I like to describe it as magic because I don't know what else it is. It's a, some mysterious thing that God is doing, prompting us, urging us, encouraging us, giving us the ability to, to move ahead. And then when there are failures, the underneath are the, are the everlasting arms. That's the safety net. I, I've talked before about what I call uh, this my sandwich view of of the Christian life. There are three levels. Up here are these seemingly incredible uh, designs that God has upon our life. Be holy, he says, because I am holy. Be holy, be holy. And then we, we look at our Lord Jesus and we see what God is really like. He's not, he's not like a clock. You know, he's a shepherd and he loves us and he cares for us and we want to be like him. That's the first level. The second level is this urging and encouraging and strengthening that, that he provides. And then underneath, there is this incredible, ongoing forgiveness. Uh, C.S. Lewis says in one of his books, uh, No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and and give up. See, he's not the God of the perfect. He's the God of of the growing. He's not the God of the righteous. He's the God of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And what you will discover as you begin to trust him and rely upon him, ask him to change you, is that he begins to change you. The old things are passed away. Everything is new. And you can say with so many Christians, I'm not the man, I'm not the woman that I was. I love the story of Zacchaeus. It's one of my favorite stories in, in the New Testament. You can read it for yourself in Luke 19. This dear little guy climbs up in a tree because he wanted, he wanted to find out what, something about Jesus. There was this hunger in his heart that almost broke his heart. And he didn't know what it was, but he just yearned to see Jesus. So he climbs up in this tree 
And the Lord spotted him, just as he spots you. He knows that hunger. Uh, you, you may think you're the only one that, that longs for God, but he sees it. He sees it. And he beckoned to Zacchaeus, said, come down. Come on down. I'm, I'm going to have dinner with you. This despised Quisling, this uh, fellow that had sold out to the, to the evil Roman Empire. And Jesus invited himself over to his house. And then they engaged in what I, what I think of as table talk. They sat around the table. And Zacchaeus said, Lord, I, you know, I want to make money. That's the ambition of my life. I want to make money. And uh, I can just imagine how the conversation went. And, and our Lord then beginning to, to correct his thinking and give him a little different perspective on things. And, and, and then finally Nicodemus or Zacchaeus stands up and he says, I, I'm so sorry. I've been ripping off my countrymen. I'm going to give back four times. What I've taken away from them. What happened? Was it because Jesus laid the law on him? No, it's just that he, uh, if I can put it this way, I don't mean to be irreverent at all. When, when you hang out with Jesus, you begin to change. That's that wonderful, wonderful grace of God. That's what changes us. It's not gritting your teeth and trying harder. It's letting him change you. Asking him to fulfill the hungers and the desires and the aspirations of your heart. Don't worry about the failure. Uh, our sins are paid for, past, present, and future. We can pick ourselves up, and we can dust ourselves off, and we can go on and expect God to begin to change us. And believe me, that's the only thing that works. Nothing else works. Law doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. We've laid the law on ourselves, and we've laid the law on others, and we know it does not work. And as Paul goes on to say in, in verse 21, this is the really the bottom line of his, of his argument. I do not set aside the grace of God, or as Phillips put it, I refuse to frustrate the gospel of God by reverting to the law. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. His death was superfluous. He didn't need to die. If we can save ourselves, who needs Christ, you see? C.S. Lewis once said, there are really only two religions in the world. There's authentic Christianity, New Testament Christianity, and there's everything else. Those are the only two religions in the world. You can take every cult, every religion, and you can put it on that side because every religion in the world apart from New Testament Christianity, says that you have to contribute something to your salvation. But, but Christ says, God himself picks up the tab. You don't even have to pick up the tip. Every other religion at least wants you to pick up the tip. You know, it's just some little thing that, that you add to grace that perverts the whole thing. And uh, as Jesus said, uh, that's the legalism of the Pharisees, which is leaven. And you know what leaven does? It just spreads through the, the whole mass until it, until it uh, perverts and, and, and destroys, or legalism perverts and destroys everything. You can't have it both ways. And that's why Paul said, if you try to mix a little bit of law in with grace, then you nullify the whole thing. 
So we've just got to get it into our heads that we are justified by faith and not by works. That's God's way. It's always been God's way. It's the only way that works. Let me uh, conclude by reading another Luther quote. This one caused me to chuckle, too. It's in his commentary in uh, the book of Galatians, on the book of Galatians. This, that is the notion of justification by faith, is the truth of the gospel. It's also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all goodness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into our heads continually. Uh, That's what we have to do, because we just want to contribute something. And we can contribute nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we so much want to grasp this principle because we want everything that you have for us. We want to grow up to full maturity. We want to have all that you have in mind for us. We want to know love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness. We want to be faithful. We want to be meek. We want to be self-controlled. We want to be rid of the habits that control us. We, we want to be like you. We want to be characterized by, that, by your gracious, winsome character. Uh, we've tried other ways. We've, we've made resolves. We've, uh, we've tried through self-effort. We've done everything we possibly can to make ourselves better people, and we know it doesn't work, and so we just ask you to change us. We, we pray that you'll begin to, to draw us closer to you and give us a clearer picture of what you're like and, and continue to make us long after that likeness and, and strengthen us as we choose obedience to be what you called us to be. Thank you for forgiveness of past sin. Thank you that we can walk in that forgiven state. Thank you for your amazing grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.